We are continuing on in our series of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We come to the point where it mentions David, and then it's going to mention Samuel. Now, we had a chapel speaker that canceled, and so the chapel speaker that canceled, I'm going to give up one of the Mondays so we can reschedule to get him back in here in April so that you'll be able to hear him. So I'm going to skip Samuel. So I'm sorry about that, but that's just what we have to do in order to get them all in. But I've got to focus on David as well, and you can't miss the passage with David. What is the key passage when you think about David? And all of you know it's 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath. So open your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath is the passage we're going to talk about today. Now let me set this up. More people have written and spoken on David and Goliath uh, than I care to recognize. So I've read a lot of literature about this. So let me set the sermon up in this way. You'll have some people that'll preach this text, and when they come to this text, they want to talk about how to slay the giants in your life, and let me give you five practical ways to slay the giants in your life. And they'll walk through the text, and they'll draw out some really good practical application. But the text then is focusing mostly on us. It's focusing mostly on how we can be David. And this text is really not about how we can be David. That's not what the text is trying to get to. And so you have those who will, on the other side, then look at that and say, that's completely man-centered, felt needs type preaching that results in a deistic, therapeutic moralism and not in an understanding of the gospel. So we have to take a purely Christocentric approach. And sometimes they even go so far as to allegorizing the entire text. So they'll come to this text and they'll say in this text, David represents Jesus. Goliath represents the devil. The Philistines then have to be like the demons or something, and we're the children of Israel sitting on the sidelines, whether that would be the Christians or the church. The problem with that is if we too closely associate David as Jesus, what happens when we come to David and Bathsheba a few chapters down the road? That doesn't work too well for us. And so there's some truth, though, in the fact that this passage is not about how we can be David. It's not about us. It's also not about how David is Christ. But it is more in general doing two things in the text. In the text, as you read through 1 Samuel, if you come to chapter 16, you realize Saul's still king, but Samuel then has by faith and a great step of faith done what God has told him to do and gone and anointed David as the next king of Israel. And he didn't look on the outward appearance because God clearly told him, don't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And David was the man, so he has anointed David. So in the text now, David has been anointed. And then Saul has a troubling spirit, and David has been drawn into Saul's service to soothe the troubling spirit. And now we come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and David is going to burst forth onto the scene. And so this is going to establish a contrasting image between David and Saul. Why is it that David has been chosen and that Saul has not been chosen? We're going to see a contrasting image between the two. And in the greater picture of the Bible, and in the greater landscape of the Bible, we also see and realize that this battle is ultimately the Lord's, just as all battles are ultimately the Lord's, and that anytime we face or anytime there is an opponent to God, God overcomes that opponent. He does so today through David. He does so today through a champion who is a willing servant who walks and defeats a giant who is an opponent that through earthly eyes he could not defeat. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you will stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we look at verse 1. Now the Philistines 
gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Dear Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would just help us focus on how great and merciful that you are. Lord, how much we need a Savior each and every day to live our lives for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Here what we see as we look at this is the text has now been set. You have the battlefield that is established and you have the Philistines who came in from the coast and they come up on one side and they're on one ridge and as they walk up on this one ridge, they put their encampment out and you have the Israelites who are on the other side and the Israelites on the other side go up to the ridge and they are up on the ridge as well and, and as they're on the ridge, they're encamped and there's a valley that's down in between the two and neither side wants to go into the valley because if you were to descend into the valley and then attempt to descend up the other hill, you're at a military disadvantage they're going to have a strategic advantage over you. They're going to have the opportunity then to pick you off, to slay you, to destroy you. And so both sides are sitting on both edges and the scene is set. And here we learn later in the text that for 40 days that they're sitting there and in those 40 days they will come out and they will dress up for battle and they will cry out with war cries and and they'll put on their best Braveheart face, I guess, or something of that nature, scream at each other and yell and cry out and neither side does anything. It's just kind of a shouting match. But these Philistines have made their way in and they're into a strategic valley where if they get past this strategic valley, they're going to be moving in their way to Bethlehem. And so they are festering in Saul's mind and creating problems in Saul's mind. And so in Saul, as he looks at these Philistines, they are a perpetual problem to him. Has anybody in here ever had an ingrown hair? Just a few of us will admit it, right? Okay. If you ever got a splinter that you couldn't get out? and it developed a sore, and it began to have pus that would develop up, or perhaps you broke a glass in the kitchen and you stepped on a piece of the little sliver of glass and it wouldn't come out of your foot right away and you felt it in there and it began to fester and get sore. Anybody in here had the feeling like that or something similar to that? Raise your hand so I can make sure you're with me. Are you with me? All right. As it begins to fester, as it begins to get sore, as that nasty, disgusting pus begins to grow around it. Are you sufficiently grossed out at this point? That's the Philistines in Saul's life. And so here we have this situation where the only way to do anything about it is to get rid of the problem. And so eventually there's going to be a moment, I won't even go there. There's gonna be a conflict that takes place. And in this conflict that takes place, you can imagine Saul's feelings as he looks on the other side and it says they're camped out. And then all of a sudden what happens is one's camped on one side and one is on the other side is down from the Philistine side comes this guy. He's a bad dude. His name is Goliath. You know the story. He is Goliath from Gath. And he walks in and as he walks in, it tells us a little bit about him here in the text. He came out of the Philistines camp, the champion who was six cubits and a span in height. Now six cubits and a span would make him nine feet, nine inches tall. 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of his armor alone was 5,000 shekels of bronze or 125 pounds. So this guy was carrying 125 pounds worth of armor on him and he was walking down and he had bronze armor on his legs. He had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And so the beginning here of iron as a strategic military advantage too and it weighed 15 pounds pounds and his shield bearer went before him and he stood and he came down and he shouted out to the ranks of Israel. We don't know exactly what he shouted. It's probably a good thing. We don't know exactly what he shouted, but here we have in the text, it says that he shouted, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. And the Philistine said, I defy the rank of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Here's this guy standing here, nine feet, nine inches tall, a lot taller than anybody else that you would have seen in that day and time. And some text even has a slightly different number, but still taller than anybody else. And the champion over here on the Israelite side should have been Saul. Saul stood head and shoulders above all of the other men. But it says in the text, when Saul heard and saw this guy, that he was dismayed and greatly afraid. All of the Israelites saw this human that was impossible to defeat in human eyes. And when they looked at this, they thought, I can't take him. I'm scared. And for 40 days, morning and evening, 40 days over and over he would come down and he would march down and he would stick out his chest and he would have his his spear and his sword and his shield bearers and he would look out at the children of Israel and he would cry out send somebody to me now every guy in the room can imagine what it would be like to be called out for 40 days morning and evening morning and evening and not respond demoralizing and here is the situation he defied the ranks of Israel give me a man that we can fight so there's your setting army on one side army on the other side Goliath coming down for 40 days we move in verse 12 then to a shift on the spotlight on a different person it says now David And we move away from the battle scene and we move to something else. And as we move to something else, I'm going to draw some practical application points out for you that I see in the text, but I don't want you to think the text focuses on how we can be David in the text. It's just some good practical application I think we can can draw from it. And it says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of those three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David, he went back and forth. And you remember from chapter 16 that he played for Saul. He soothed Saul and Saul had even written to Jesse to let David stay with him for he had found favor in his sight. And so he went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward, took his stand morning and evening. And then in verse 17, it says, Jesse said to David, his son, take your brothers and Ephath. 
of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers and also these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. And Saul and all of the men of Israel were at the valley fighting with the Philistines. And in verse 20, it says, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Here we get our first practical application that I want to draw out for you. So I'm not going to give it to you at the end today. I'm going to give it to you all throughout the message here. Little things matter. The little things in life matter. Look at what David did. David, it says here that he left the sheep with a keeper. He got up early in the morning. Now I can understand why he got up early in the morning. Everybody wants to go see a good fight, right? He wants to go see the battle. He wakes up, he's excited, he's energized. He gets up early and he's going to rush off to the battle, but he doesn't forget about this other task that he's been given, which are these sheep. And he takes this task very seriously, even though many would consider being a shepherd a little thing, a thing that doesn't matter a whole lot. And later on in this text, you also are gonna see that he not only takes it seriously, he takes it so seriously that he says he has struck down lions and bears. Look what it says in verse 34 and 35. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father and there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. All right, now pause, time out right there. If this is me and a lion comes to grab one sheep and he takes off, instead of going after the lion to get the one sheep, I'm just happy he didn't get me, right? I mean, you think about it. He doesn't pull out a 30 out six bolt action rifle and load and look through a scope at several hundred yards away in safety. He's right there with the lion. And a lion comes and grabs a sheep and what does he do? He takes his task of protecting his sheep seriously enough that David says a lion or a bear comes out after me and they take one of the sheep and they go off. I'm going after the bear to get my sheep back. Now, how many of you would take watching over sheep that seriously? He took his task seriously. It's the little things. So here's some application for you. The little things matter. Spiritually, what are the little things? Reading your Bible. You say, gosh, I have to read it for class. I'm in McKinnon's Old Testament class, and he makes me read the Bible all the time. Good for him. You got to read the Bible personally for your private devotion, and you will never grow in your spiritual life past the point where you need to read the Bible personally for your private devotion. You say, why do I have to read the Bible? That's where we learn about the God that we love and the God that we serve, and that's where the Bible speaks to us about things in our lives that need to change. The little things that matter, never give up reading your Bible. If you don't wanna read your Bible, you're not reading the letter that God sent to us to tell us how he loves us and to tell us about our own life, and you are not listening to God's word at that point, and I can't drill in hard enough or fast enough how you have to read your Bible. If you ever get to a point where you say, I'm not going to read my Bible anymore, you're going to dry up spiritually. You're going to have things that affect you spiritually because you have to make sure you keep reading your Bible and letting God's word soak in. And so you memorize the scripture, you meditate on it, you pray to God and ask the Holy Spirit to show you new things that you haven't seen. You read through and study the scripture and you hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God. It's a little thing. You say, I want to be done with all of these sin issues. I want to move past this. I want to be a spiritually mature Christian. It's the little things. It's reading your Bible. Okay, what about 
practical application outside of spiritual. You want to be a good leader? It's the little things. Do you answer phone calls? Do you return phone calls? Do you return emails? Do you show up on time for meetings? Do you show up on time for meetings? Well-dressed, showered, looking professional. Do you do all the little things that matter eventually? You want to be good at sports? All of our coaches would tell you it's the little things. You want to hit a baseball well? You watch the baseball till it comes to the bat. You don't do like I used to do and close your eyes because it's coming too fast. It doesn't work, I can promise you. If you want to be good at basketball, you follow through on your shots, you set picks, you move your feet. It's the little things in every discipline you could go through and name the fundamentals of that discipline that build up eventually to success. And here what you see is a little glimpse of David making sure the fundamentals are taken care of. You can apply that to your spiritual life, your academic life. You can apply that to your work. You can apply that to sports. The little things matter. So be faithful in them. He says here as he continues on, and Jesse had commanded him, so he took the camp, went to the encampment, and the host was going out to do battle and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things he had brought in charge of the keeper and the baggage, and he ran to the ranks. He was excited. He went and he greeted his brothers as he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, in verse 24, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And you see the word defy mentioned in this text again and again. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David stood to the men who stood by him and said, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And you see a different perspective here as he notes the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Here, look what happens in verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. Now here, we have what some would say may be a valid criticism, a valid insight into David's heart as you look at his life later on and you look at the fact that David heard what was going to be given and then he asked what was going to be given and then after this he asked again what's going to be given? What are they going to get if they go down and fight this Philistine? Maybe there's a glimpse here of some insight that a brother has looking on a younger brother after living life with him day by day. But I still think the criticism here is invalid. Eliab has been passed over to be king. David has been anointed. That would be a tough pill for an older brother to swallow. Eliab here sees his youngest brother coming to the lines and talking and speaking boldly and bravely, saying, who defies this army of the living God? And as he sees this, he looks at him and he says to him, why have you come down? He doesn't realize or ask the question or find out that his dad has sent him and he's following a command. And then he says to him, and he begins to judge his motives. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. We understand we can't see somebody's motives, but far too often often we jump to a conclusion.
confusion. And we judge the motives of somebody else's heart without fully understanding what their intent is. Only God can see the heart. And here he's saying to him, your presumption and the evil of your heart, you have only come down to see the battle. And here David responds, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another. And here we see David with this criticism from his older brother, from somebody who loved him. He turned away from it and he went on. And then in the following verses, we also see another criticism. The words that David spoke were heard. They were repeated before Saul. So David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. In verse 33, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a warrior, man of war from his youth. Here we see another criticism. Two types of criticisms. I want to say to you as a way of practical application, if you're ever going to do anything bold for God, to expect that criticism will come. People are going to criticize you. In everything you do, people are going to criticize you. And if you do something in front of a larger crowd, you can never please all the people. So expect criticism is going to come. When you take a stand and you stand up and you say this is right or this is wrong, people are going to criticize you. And so expect that criticism will come. David shows up and somebody close to him, his older brother, criticizes him. Probably unjustly, although he may have insights into his life and David doesn't respond to that criticism. He goes and he talks to Saul and Saul criticizes him. And when Saul criticizes him, he looks at him and says, how is it that you're going to go fight? You're but a youth and this guy has been a man of war since his youth. And that's more of a valid criticism. So David then responds to that criticism. And David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck them down and took them out of his mouth. He arose against me. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. In verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He had criticism and he evoked past successes as he confronted this valid criticism. So two points of application I want to make to you here. I want to say to you, expect criticism. I could point to many different things in life where criticism has come. The one that surprised me the most that I never could figure out and still haven't quite figured out is last year on campus, we had a great service. Many of you remember it, uh, where Clayton King came to preach in chapel. And after he spoke in chapel for two days, we had 17, 18 professions of faith, something like that. And so we sent out just a communication, just praising God for doing something special in chapel service. And I got a letter back. It was a letter that was anonymously written, but it was a letter to me, complaining about the fact that we had had professions of faith in chapel. The letter stated that we shouldn't let in people who weren't saved in the first place, and so we should not have professions of faith in chapel. Now, you all had to fill out the the profession of faith as you entered Cedarville. You know we haven't changed that. Nothing has changed. But I want to say to you, if somebody will criticize 17 professions of faith made in chapel, somebody will criticize everything. If you're going to stand up for God and do anything, you're going to get criticism. And so expect it. I also want to say to you, be careful judging the motives of somebody's heart. I can't know your motives. You can't know my motives. 
If somebody comes against us, we can't understand why they're truly doing what they're doing, but God does, and God knows, and God will ultimately judge my motives, your motives, everybody else's motives, and so we have to be careful when we are judging people's motives. But look more importantly here at what David does. David points back to past successes, and he gives God the credit for them. And so by way of application here to you, what I would say to you is write down successes. When God has called you to do something, when God has delivered you from something, when God has done something in your life, answered a prayer request that is an amazing prayer request, write those down so that you'll have those somewhere, so that you'll have record of those. And when you get into those moments where perhaps you feel all alone, or perhaps you feel criticized, or perhaps you feel like nobody truly understands, you can look back upon that list of things that God has done in your life, and you can lean to that list so that you can stay strong and have faith and continue on. And here, that's what David does when criticism comes. He looks back on past successes. And, and why do I think sometimes that this is an unvalid criticism that his older brother makes? As I look at the life of David as he continues on, and I see the fact that David, even sitting in a cave, when Saul comes in and he cuts off the corner of his robe, I see that David at that moment even goes out and apologizes and says, I, how should it be that I should ever lift my hand against the Lord's anointed? And I see in David here a heart that David doesn't want to presume upon God, but he's going to allow God to bring, around, bring things about in his own time and in his own way. And I see in David, before he makes his mistakes with Bathsheba, I see in David a person who is truly seeking after God with humility and with service. And we understand that the text has told us here in chapter 16, just before this, in verse 18, it says, Behold, the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. I don't think the criticism was valid but you can expect it. Text continues on here, and Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David in his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I can't go with these things, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Can I say to you, be yourself? It's another form of just practical application. Be who you are. There are some of you that God's going to use to do amazing things. And you're going to get criticized because you don't do them in the way that everybody else does them. But God may have called you to do it in a special way. And if God has called you to do it in a certain way, be yourself and do it in that way. Don't try to be somebody else. I listed some examples down here when I was trying to think of, of being somebody else and what does it look like when you're trying to be somebody else. And the first thing that came to mind is the weight room. Have you ever been in the weight room and noticed somebody that wanted to act like they were in the weight room all the time, but they really never were in the weight room? You know, they come in with all the new gear and all the new gadgets, and they've got all these nice weightlifting gloves and a brand new belt that you can tell has never been broken in because there's, it's, it's brand, there's not a crease anywhere on it like it's ever been worn before. And they've got all of the Under Armour special workout gear on, and, and they go in, and they, they, they just look like they know exactly what they're doing right up until the moment they get on that bench press, and then they start doing something like this, or, or right up until the moment they start doing some curls, and they grab a real big heavy weight, and then they curl with their back bent, and, and they're looking at the, the mirror, and every time they walk by the mirror, you know, they've got that chest stuck out, and they're flexing those bicep muscles to see them up there. And anybody ever seen anybody like that? I'm sorry, I'll try not to do it again, okay? But <laughs> you've seen that person. They're there. I also think, 
perhaps this is a little bit more about me, I think of people when they try to be cool and they fail miserably at it. I can't dress in a middle ground type way. You can ask my wife. I have no, I am suit, tie, and cuff link, or I am blue jeans and a t-shirt and cowboy boots or tennis shoes or something like that. I have no, so I look at some of you guys and you dress really cool, and I think that looks really cool, but there's no way on God's earth I could ever pull that off. (laughs) And I'm not talking about skinny jeans now. I mean, I couldn't pull that off either, but I'm talking about some of the real stylish clothes that's... That's not me. Now, have you ever known anybody that tried to put on clothes that just didn't fit them? It just did, Do you know anybody like that? Don't look at your neighbor and point to them. <laughs> have you ever seen somebody that tried not to be who they were? So maybe they show up in a class and all of a sudden they try to start talking around a certain person with a different voice or they try to impress somebody and you're sitting there looking at your friend as they're trying to impress this person and you're kind of looking at them like, who are you and where did you come from and what is this person? I don't know this person. What are you doing? You're changing in order to impress somebody. And here, this is what Saul was trying to do to David. Here, you've got to look just like us and do things just like us. So put on all of this coat of armor and you put on this helmet and you put on all this other stuff and then you're going to go out and you're going to go to war. And that would have been the worst mistake that David could have made to put on all the armor and to go out in close hand-to-hand combat with Goliath who is nine feet, nine inches tall and has all of this armor on, 125 pounds worth of armor to fight against David. There's no way he can win like that. And David says to him, no, I'm just going to be myself. This won't work. And so David, what does he do? He goes down and he says, I haven't tested them. He put them off. He took his staff in his hand. He went and got five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. Now, if you ever go to Israel, they will sell you the exact stones that David put in his pouch. Don't buy them. I've got all five of them at home, so they're not real. Okay. You can't have them. And so he goes down and he gets five smooth stones from the brook and he puts them in his shepherd's pouch and his sling's in his hand and he approaches the Philistine. Now, if David had gone down and had tempted to fight the Philistine in the way that they normally fought, what would have happened to David? Probably would have been crushed. But God had specially prepared him just like he had specially prepared other people throughout the Old Testament to be used at a specific point in time. And I want to say to you that you are God's unique creation and God has specifically prepared you for a task in your life and don't let anybody ever tell you that he hasn't and he wants to do something amazing through you. And he wants to use your gifts in your way to do something for his glory ultimately. And you don't let anybody else tell you you have to change to be used by God because God made you just the way he made you and God doesn't make mistakes. And if you don't look like somebody else, that's okay. And if you don't talk like somebody else, that's okay. And if you don't have the intelligence level or an athletic ability or something else, that's okay. Because you are God's unique creation put on this earth to be part of his big plan. And he has a special purpose for you. And you've got to find out what that purpose is and go after it with all of your might and be who you are for his glory. That would have been a good spot for an amen from somebody, but I'm just saying. All right. He goes out. He's got his five smooth stones. The Philistine moves forward and comes near to David and his shield bearer in front of him in verse 42, the Philistine looks at David He has disdain for him. He says, he's just a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Now, let me put a comma right here. How many of you have read Malcolm Gladwell's book on David and Goliath? Very few of you have read that book. If you ever read that book, he's gonna make the argument that Goliath has a disease 
That disease results in a tumor, which makes him grow so tall. And in that tumor, it also affects his eyesight. And because his eyesight is affected, he looks at David and he sees sticks. And he tries to make it so that Goliath really wasn't all that bad and anybody could have taken him and that this wasn't necessarily as big a giant to face as you might have thought. I don't agree with Gladwell's interpretation, although he does have some very interesting statistics, such as the fact that slinging a stone, the record was set in 1981 by Larry Bray at a 437 meters is how far he slung a stone. So if that gives you any indication of how far you could sling a stone, that's a long way. But in that book, he tries to make Goliath out to be not so bad. For 40 days, Goliath came and looked up at the children of Israel and called out to them, send me somebody to fight. I think Goliath was a pretty bad dude. When Goliath looks and he says, sticks here, I think it's an expression. I don't think he's seeing multiple sticks. He doesn't look at David and say, why did you send two men out after me? He looks at David as one person. He says, what are you? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Are we going to play fetch now? Basically is what he's asking. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds and your air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. And here's your key but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. He only had five stones in a sling. What was he gonna cut his head off with? He's gonna get Goliath's sword. He had a plan. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know, and here's your main point of your text, that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And that point of the text goes beyond this battle into all battles. The battle is the Lord and he will give them into our hands. Verse 48, the Philistine rose and came quickly to him. David put his hand in his bag and you can see it there with armies on one side and armies on the other side. And David rushes out quickly. He puts his sling in and he begins to sling it around and he's moving around and he lets that sling glow and that sling hits right into the the forehead and sinks into the head and it sinks in deeply. And we think, what a unique shot. But we know from the text of Judges chapter 20, verse 16 through 18, that they had 700 men that could hit at a hair's breadth without missing. First Chronicles 12, two says they had slingers with the right arm and with the left arm. What's the point of the text here? It's that the battle's the Lord's. David prevailed over the Philistine in verse 50 with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran over to the Philistine, took the sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. And right there, I just wonder where was the armor bearer at that point in time? I guess he had already left or fled or was standing in shock or something. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. All the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, and they plundered them. Jump down, if you will, to verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he looked at Abner, the commander of the army, and he said, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire. Verse 57, as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Verse 38, Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Here in this text, we see Saul, who is only willing to give his armor 
And we see David, the shepherd, willing to give his life. Here in this text, we see Saul, who had had David ministering in front of him. And in chapter 17 or 16 at the end, it talks about how David had found favor in his sight and he played the lyre and the harp and became his armor bearer. And Saul didn't even know who David was. He sent a letter to David's father saying, let him stay with me. He's found favor in my sight. In the very next chapter, he doesn't even know who he is. Here, what we see is a contrast between Saul, who was terrified and afraid, and David, who looked out and saw an enemy that was a big enemy, but at the same time, he saw a God who was a bigger God. And he said, who is this person to defy the armies of the living God? What's the conclusion? The conclusion of this text is this. We have an enemy that we fight. It's the sinful flesh, the sinful temptation, it's the devil. These are enemies that we can't overcome in and of ourselves, but we don't have to overcome them because 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, Jesus, to a cross, and on that cross, he died a death in our place and for our sakes, and he went to the grave, and three days later, he got up from the grave, and he ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit living within us gives us the power then to resist the sinful temptations that come against us, and so we have foes that we face, but through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit living within us and the power of God, we can defy sin and Satan and the devil and overcome this world because God and he who lives within us is greater than he who is in the world. And so I say to you, be yourself, be bold, step forward and do amazing things for God through the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory, not in our own power, but in his power and for his sake. And to put it in our series, Hebrews 11, once again, the writer scanning through the history of the Old Testament says, think back to David, by faith, God is faithful, you can trust him. By faith, God is faithful, you can trust him. By faith, God is faithful, you can trust him. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to live by faith. Amen. You are dismissed.